Today we'll continue the message that we started last week in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 uh, through uh, 49. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn to that passage of Scripture, Daniel chapter 2, 31 through 49. I'll read the passage that was our focus last week just to remind us of the content and part of the interpretation of the dream that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar, and then we'll look at the passage of Scripture before us today, particularly focused on verses 44 through 49. Verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. The image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of a summer threshing floors. And the winds carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that was struck, the image, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, uh, the children of man and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like the iron that crushes, it shall, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divide, a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon 
And Daniel made a request for the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Let us pray. Father, today we would ask you to impress upon us uh, not just the meaning of the image that we find here in Daniel's dream, but even more the meaning of the stone, the fifth kingdom. Father, remind us of the eternality and the greatness of your kingdom. Remind us that we are citizens of your kingdom by grace through faith in Christ. And may we leave this place, O God, with a heightened sense of privilege and joy that even today we are not primarily members of the United States of America, but citizens of the kingdom, your kingdom, that will stand forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So last week as we looked at Genesis chapter, Genesis, I was just talking in Genesis in Sunday school, Daniel uh, chapter 2 verses 31 through 43, we looked at, at two things primarily last week, the content of Daniel's dream, and you remember Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know the content of his dream, and so he, he ordered his wise men to give him the content and they couldn't do it. And Daniel says, I can do it. And sure enough, by God revealing the mystery to Daniel, he was able to give Daniel the content of his dream that was in the form of an image of a human being. So this great image we're given that has four parts that represented uh, four kingdoms. And as you remember, there was a head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the midsection and thighs of bronze, and then the legs of two parts, the legs of iron, and then the feet of a mixture of iron and clay. And then there was a second part to the content of the dream, and that was what Daniel told to Nebuchadnezzar about this little stone. I call it a little stone because I think it was a little stone in comparison to the great image. But it was a mere stone that was carved out of this mountain, not by human hands. And then Daniel went on to tell Nebuchadnezzar that that little stone broke the feet that were composed of iron and clay of that great image and shattered the feet into pieces, and then the whole image collapsed, and the image was broken into such small pieces that it was as if it was was chaff on a threshing floor, and the evening wind just simply blew it away where there is no trace left. And so Daniel relayed uh, to the the king the content of his dream. And then the second thing that we looked at was the the interpretation or the meaning of this great image. Now, last week we could not get to the meaning of the stone. That's part of our task today. But let me review with you the meaning that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar of this great image. Now, I told you the great image was of four parts. And we talked about last week, and Daniel says, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And so the head of gold, which I'm sure pleased Nebuchadnezzar to no end, it would please me. And this head of gold was symbolic of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, which, as you may remember, began in 625 B.C., but came to an abrupt end in 539 B.C. 
And so Daniel spoke about this head of gold and related it to Nebuchadnezzar. Then he said, another kingdom will be raised up after you, Nebuchadnezzar. And we identify that as the Medo-Persian Empire that began in 539 B.C. and lasted until 331 B.C. And then after that, another kingdom would, or the Medo-Persian Empire would end, and then another kingdom would be raised up. And that kingdom began in 331 B.C., and that ended in 63 B.C., and that is the kingdom that is the middle section and the legs, the bronze section of the image. And, of course, that's Alexander the Great's Greek Empire. And then the very fourth and last image that we have, uh, or part of the image that we have in Daniel chapter 2, was that, that weird uh, kingdom of legs of iron and feet of clay mixed with iron. And we, we made much over the fact that, that iron and clay do not mix or do not bond together. So we see that this, this fourth empire has some real strength, iron, but also is vulnerable to collapse and, and, and to decline because of, of the feet, the clay and iron mixture that simply will not bond. And this we identified as the Roman Empire, which had its beginning in 63 B.C., again, following after uh, Alexander the Great's Greek Empire, and then it lasted until A.D. 476. And so we talked about then the meaning of this great image was simply this. Human empires rise and fall. They are finite. And that was the primary lesson that God was communicating to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel about this about the, the finiteness of his own reign and of his own kingdom. And now today what we want to do is to look at the second aspect of the interpretation, and that is the interpretation of this little stone. And then a second thing that we'll do today is to look at how Nebuchadnezzar responded to this dream, and we'll find three ways that he responded, and the third way is a non-response, but it's still a response. And so you'll see on your sermon outline, the new sermon outline on your insert, that you have the, the, the content of the image, then, then the, the, meaning, the, the, the meaning of the dream, and then the third point is the purpose. As I've studied this, I believe the meaning of the stone really is the purpose of the dream. So we'll be looking today at that third point on your supplemental sermon outline. The the purpose of the dream is the meaning of the stone. And then we'll look at Nebuchadnezzar's response uh, to this dream. And so so what is the meaning of the the stone? And, And what is interesting, in verse 34, we've already learned... Uh, something about the stone. We, we've learned about the effect that the stone has, and, and what is that effect? That the stone smashes uh, the feet of this image, and it crumbles into pieces where there is eventually no trace left of that kingdom. Now, what's interesting is that I love biblical archaeology. It was one of my favorite courses in seminary. My Old Testament professor was the curator of the Harvard Semitic Museum. We got to 
uh, visit the, the research center of the Harvard Semitic Museum and hold all kinds of interesting artifacts from all, all over the ancient world, primarily in Israel. And w- when we think of the land of Israel, we, we, we think of a place where there's just all kinds of traces of past civilizations. And even here recently, there is this uh, sarcophagus that was found at a building site in the, the, the city of Ashkelon in Israel. And it's dated to be about 1,800 years old. It was a very rare and fantastic find. And the point that I want to make is that when we look at the country of Israel, for example, there are, there's evidence of past civilizations all over the place. In fact, you could be out just walking along some path, hiking, and find a potsherd, a piece of a pot that may date back to uh, Old Testament times. There's that many things out there in those that many artifacts in Israel that point to past civilizations but when we come to the purpose of the dream which is the meaning of a stone one thing that we will find is that the stone will cause the kingdoms of men to be so destroyed that not even a potsherd will be left that can be traced to that kingdom in the end. Think about that. This is the meaning of the dream. The kingdoms of men come and go. They rise and fall. They are finite. But there's a fifth kingdom, the kingdom of the stone, that has always been and has always operated in the background of human history in parallel to human kingdoms. And this fifth kingdom will always stand and never fail. So the illustration that I used last week about computer software and that I have my my computer and I'm working on my documents that we talked about or working on my calendar. I have all these open programs. But in the background, there's my, my security program that's operating unnoticed. And so we're very familiar with, if most of us use computers, and so we're very familiar with things operating in the background, but then you've got the open programs in the foreground that are operating. And so really the meaning of the dream, the purpose of the dream is for God to reveal through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar that, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is going to end, and all the kingdoms that come after you will end, and all the kingdoms that came before you have ended. But there's a fifth kingdom, my kingdom, that will never end. And it's been operating the whole time of human history, appearing in stages and growing and building. And will one day that fifth kingdom will be the only thing left standing. And there will not even be a piece of pottery that will point to the kingdoms of men. Because the kingdom of God will so bring an end to the kingdoms of men, and we'll have the new heavens and the new earth. I want us to look at this fifth kingdom, not the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, with his greatness, not Alexander the Great and all of his greatness being the centerpiece of the dream, but it is this fifth kingdom, it is this little stone, it is this what seems to be this insignificant little rock that is the centerpiece of 
the dream. And in verses 44 and 45, we want to pick up, we left off at verse 43 last week, but now at verses 44 and 45, we want to pick up, and I want to do one thing. I want to differentiate between the kingdoms of men represented by this image in the four kingdoms and this fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I've got six, six ways that the kingdoms of men and the fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God, are differentiated or, or distinguished apart from one another. And the first is this in verse 44. We learn that the fifth kingdom is God's kingdom. He set it up. Now, we know that the kingdoms of men, from a historical perspective, from the perspective here on earth in the horizontal plane, as we observe things, that the kingdoms of men are built by men, right? Now, we'll learn in just a little bit, or at least be reminded, that ultimately God is the one who sets up kings and who takes them down. But just from our perspective, we find that the kingdoms of men are for the most part, from our perspective, built by men, but not the fifth kingdom. It's solely God's kingdom. In fact, we see this to be the case in in verses 34 and 45, where it's very specific that this little stone that is the fifth kingdom is cut out of the mountain with no human hands. There is not one even smudge of a man's fingerprint on the kingdom of God. Now, secondly, in verse 44, we also learn that while the kingdoms of men are operating in the foreground, this fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God, has always been operating in the background. And it may be appear in stages. And it's in the background, it's in the foreground, the kingdoms of men are rising and falling. Now, I've already mentioned this in our little illustration about computers and software that runs in the background. But is this true? Is it true that the text tells us in verse 44 that the kingdom of God is running in the background and has always been running in the background and is running in the background today? Well, look at the text in verse 44. It says, in those days, that is, in the days of those kings, the fifth kingdom was established. Now, some scholars, and I would say um, in a, um, not appropriately, will, will try to look at that term, those kings, and have us think that it really is in reference to the ten kings that came later that are symbolized by the ten toes of the image. And... I want to say that we, we don't have time to go into all of that, but whenever you deal with apocalyptic literature, you can come across some really fanciful interpretations. <laughs> and so the, those kings are not referencing ten kings that come later, that, uh, and you get that from the ten toes of, of the image. That's um, probably going a little bit too far with one's exegesis. Those kings, in the days of those kings, refer to Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire, Alexander the Great, and then, and then the, the leaders of Rome. In, in other words, what, what the text is saying is that 
God set up this, this kingdom in the background running in parallel to all the kingdoms of men. And so, indeed, we can say that God's kingdom was established and has been running in the background throughout all of human history, though it may appear in stages at this time or that time. And we might see it more fuller here and more fuller there. And so, it's God's kingdom. It's running in the background. Oh, and let us not forget. It's not only those kings, those four kingdoms and all the kingdoms that came before them, but the kingdom of God is running in the background and in parallel to all the kingdoms that came after those four kingdoms. And the kingdom of God is running in the background and in parallel to the nation that we live in today, the United States of America. In verse 44, we find yet another way that this kingdom is distinguished, and it says that it is indestructible and it's non-replaceable, that the kingdom of God cannot be destroyed, and nothing is going to replace the kingdom of God. Though the kingdoms of men are, they come to an end, and they're replaced by another kingdom. And we see in verse 45, for example, that this little stone will come and crush into into, um, innumerable pieces the kingdoms of men. But the stone itself and the kingdom that it represents will never be destroyed. And then another thing that we find about this kingdom, a, a fourth thing that distinguishes it in verse 44, is that the kingdom is victorious. As man's kingdoms come and go, this kingdom, as the text says, stands forever. And then a fifth way this kingdom is distinguished from the kingdoms of men is that it is universal. Notice what the text says, and we read about this in verse 35, actually, where the little stone is cut from a mountain, and then it grows into a great mountain that what? Fills the entire world. So this kingdom is distinguished from the kingdom of men and that it's God's kingdom. It's running in the background. It's indestructible and non-replaceable. It's victorious. It is universal. And then the sixth thing, surprisingly enough, is that this kingdom has very humble and almost insignificant beginnings. The image is, is described as what? A great image. Look what man has done. This morning in Sunday school, we looked at the Tower of Babel. Look what we have done. We want to make a name for ourselves. But yet there's this little stone that, from a human perspective, doesn't have all that great of a start. Just a little rock that's, that's chiseled out of a mountain. Big deal. It just happens to crush the feet of the image, and it's completely destroyed And then that little stone comes to to be a great mountain. And then that great mountain comes to consume the entire earth. Think for just a moment of the incarnation. Think for just a moment of Jesus' childhood. Think for just a moment at the humble and lowly beginnings of Jesus. And think for just a moment that one day Jesus is going to come as King of kings and Lord of lords, and bring, bring the consummation, the end of all things, and usher in the eternal state. This one with lowly beginnings who wound up on a cross is going to come back as a victorious king. It's a distinguishing mark of the kingdom of God, humble beginnings, but wow, what an end. <laughs> And we find 
this so reflected in passages like Mark chapter 4 and verses 30 through 44 as Jesus is describing the kingdom. And he says, the kingdom is like a mustard seed, one of the smallest seeds that we have. And you plant it and what happens? It grows into a great plant where the birds can come and rest and where it gives shade. And this is why Christians should not be so despairing. We should despair over our sin. (laughs) And we we contribute so much to the moral and spiritual decline of our country, just our own sin and corporate sin as a church. need to be, be repentant. But we shouldn't despair over the fact that it looks like the kingdom of God isn't winning. It's already won. And we're part of it. The purpose of the dream is this. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die and your kingdom is going to crumble and there will not even be one artifact left to point to you and your kingdom. But the kingdom of God, my kingdom, is going to stand forever. We look to Psalm chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5. Turn there in your Bibles. Psalm chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. This is the psalm that basically sets the stage for every psalm that comes after it. And we read, starting in verse 4, he is like a, this is the righteous man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Now listen to this. The wicked are not so, but are like what? Chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked are like that statue that is so utterly destroyed by that little stone. The pieces so ground into a fine dust that just a light breeze on the threshing floor eradicates any trace of it. You see, the kingdom of God may have a small beginning, but wow. (laughs) It's a powerful beginning, and it's a powerful middle, and it's a powerful end, and it's powerful in eternity. And then I would take you to Psalm chapter 2. Just flip the page or look at the next column. Verses 8 and 9. This is the psalm. Clearly, it's a messianic psalm. Clearly, this psalm is about Jesus, the son of David. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And listen to this. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And we see Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar that psalm addresses (laughs) the purpose of this dream. Now David didn't give this psalm to Nebuchadnezzar, but we're looking at it as a messianic psalm pointing to Jesus that reflects the purpose of the dream, that the human empires will be crushed and destroyed and God's kingdom will stand forever. And so in summary, let's look at this. The stone is Jesus Christ and the kingdom is his messianic kingdom. And Daniel interprets this to Nebuchadnezzar. It's established by God at the beginning Its powers have been released and are being released. It is running in the background of human history, has always done so, is doing so 
today. And it has appeared in stages and developed over human history, but will one day come in full. Jesus' kingdom has come. In fact, we read in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And so we understand that, that Jesus coming in the time period of that fourth kingdom of the great image, the Roman Empire, and we see a fuller development and expression of the kingdom of God in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom that shows the kingdom has come and is coming. And yet we also know that the kingdom has not come in full, but one day will come in full at the consummation. And today we're part of that great coming and developing and growing of the kingdom of Jesus Christ as we look for the fulfillment of that kingdom in, in the future. And I want to make a statement here about God's sovereignty because as we have said that, that this fifth kingdom is running in the background of human history in parallel to all the kingdoms of men. And so as we spoke about last week, when we just look at the, at the empire of Rome, what is clear to me and perhaps to you is that Rome, Rome's decline was primarily due to the moral and spiritual decay of that empire. And if you want to know what the moral and spiritual decay of the Roman Empire was, just simply read Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And that will tell you just how wicked and perverted the Roman culture was, in which Pentecost took place, <laughs> and in which Jesus was born. And in which Jesus was crucified. So the, even though some may want to say it's an invading army or it's economic collapse or whatever the cause may be. Really, when, a, when a, an empire crumbles, I think you can trace the roots of it to moral and spiritual decay. So Rome, Rome was strong and had great technology and all sorts of positive things. But it's moral and spiritual decay was it made it vulnerable to decline, and it fell. And it would be easy for us to say, well, wait a minute. If God's fifth kingdom is running in, 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 in the background and parallel to all kingdoms, then God is sovereign over that, right? Absolutely so. And so in speaking of God's kingdom always being running in the background, what we're saying is that ultimately God is sovereign over the rise and fall of these empires. But God is not the author of sin. Men are always responsible for our sin. And yet we read in Daniel chapter 2 that he removes kings, that is God, and sets them up. And so the purpose of the dream is twofold. It is to reveal that human kingdoms are finite. And secondly, the purpose of the dream is to reveal that God's kingdom is triumphant and will stand forever. The whole time in the rise and fall of kingdoms, God has been sovereignly working, bringing his purposes about. And his purposes are for his kingdom to be triumphant and glorious. And Daniel at the end of verse 45 says this in Nebuchadnezzar, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. 
And then Daniel says, this dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. In other words, you can count on it, Nebuchadnezzar. This is true truth. Well, how did Nebuchadnezzar respond? The first way Nebuchadnezzar responded to this, it would be interesting for us just to stop, put ourselves in Nebuchadnezzar's sandals, I suppose, and ask the question, how would you respond? You've been wanting to know the interpretation of this dream. All of a sudden, you've got the interpretation. And from our point of view, things don't look good for Nebuchadnezzar. So how, do you, how would you respond if you were Nebuchadnezzar? Well, Nebuchadnezzar responds in an interesting way. First, he responds by worship. We, we see that he falls on his face. He bows down. He pays all kinds of homage uh, uh, to Daniel. He get, brings thanks offering. These are all acts of, of worship that Nebuchadnezzar heaps upon Daniel in verses 46 through 47. And he even acknowledges God's power and sovereignty as the revealer of mysteries. Wow, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar had a real conversion experience here, doesn't it? He even says that, that Daniel, your God, is, is the Lord of all kings. And that phrase that is used is, is very rare and is not well understood. It's not a common phrase, but likely this is what Nebuchadnezzar was confessing. Daniel, your God has moved up to the front of the line of my pantheon of gods. I've got all these gods that I think are great, but I tell you what, your God is now number one. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's worship is not to show that all of a sudden he became a converted monotheist. He's still as polytheistic as the day is long. And a second way that he responds is that he honors Daniel and gives him gifts. I mean, extravagant things. We don't know all, that, all of the, the, the gifts. Um, I'm sure he gave Daniel a gift card, uh, probably a Starbucks, but... but um, and that's not an endorsement of Starbucks or gift cards, by the way. Just something that came to my mind. Um, back to the Word of God. Uh, and, and then he promoted Daniel. I mean, he doesn't promote Daniel. Okay, you can be the supervisor. No, he, he puts Daniel in, in ruler over the realm and prefect of all the wise men, which I'm sure aggravated the wise men. <laughs> they probably didn't like that. Who is this wise guy coming on, on our turf, this, this foreigner? Now, what's interesting, and this is a sidebar here, that even though Daniel was promoted, honored by, by Nebuchadnezzar, I want us to see something that I think is important as we progress through the rest of the book. Daniel is given great power. He's given great responsibility and he's put in a place where he could really compromise. Now, we'll see Daniel not compromise. But sometimes I wonder if this is you know, such an honor or a gift to be given such a high position. But Daniel was. Of course, we see this all under the sovereignty of God. God orchestrating in the background all of these events to put Daniel in this place of influence. So that God's purposes might be carried out in the future. But I'm sure if I were Daniel, I would be thinking, well, I've got all this power. It's just an opportunity for me to compromise, which we'll see in Daniel made him more and more 
a seeker of the Lord and for his grace. And then the last, the, the, the third way that Nebuchadnezzar responds is really no, no, no response at all. I mean, you know, the, the, the king is in awe of this God of Daniel, Lord of kings. Uh, wow, got this interpretation, really impressed with Daniel. Here all these gifts and, and all, of, all of these honors. And so Nebuchadnezzar seems to be very much focused on the here and now, very much focused on living in this world. What we don't see in Nebuchadnezzar is, is, I mean, he did fall down, face on the ground, worship, but we really don't see him broken. We really don't see him devastated over the fact that his kingdom is going to come to an end and it's going to be replaced by another. You would think that would cause him to go, oh my goodness, I better get my life together. Uh, Maybe there is something to this God that I've yet to figure out. Maybe I better find out. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do what Daniel did in chapter 1, verse 18. Seek God's mercy. And we certainly see this, and we'll see this next week, as this really boggles my mind, but Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue to himself and orders everybody to worship it. That's next week. But it's clear to me that Nebuchadnezzar remained unconverted. He did not become a monotheist. He did not seek God's mercy. He's focused on the here and now. He's still thinking in terms of this life is all I have. And yet Daniel in chapter 1 verse 18, after he asked Arioch, the captain of the guard, to, to work the deal so he could come before Nebuchadnezzar to interpret the, the dream, Daniel goes back to his companions at their home and he says, men, let's pray, let's what? Seek God's mercy. And, Dan, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seek God's mercy. And how did Daniel respond to all of this? It's interesting, and this really has significance for next week. But he says, King, can you appoint you know, my three companions in some position? And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put in a position of influence in Babylon. And they too are placed in a position of compromise. But will they? Stay tuned. Next week we'll look at the statue in the fiery furnace. And I just want to briefly and quickly draw some implications. The fifth kingdom of the stone, God's kingdom, has always been running in parallel to all kingdoms, will be triumphant one day, uh, will fill the whole earth, and no trace will be left of these human, human kingdoms. And we need to look at our own country today. We need to ask the question, what path are we on as a country and it's not the path that would, that would be. What's the path of every human empire? We, we, we see Rome coming to a place of being morally and spiritually decaying. And I believe that in the backdrop, that's really the primary reason it fell. And I want us to look at our own country today. And just ask some pretty hard questions. How are we doing as a country? This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about just redemptive history and, and the fact that Israel was so apostate at 
much of the time in history, though there was a righteous line, and there was a point in Israel's history where they sacrificed infants to the god Molech right outside the city gates of Jerusalem in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And we, we look at the ancient culture and we say, oh my, what a wicked, barbarous bunch they were. And yet in recent weeks we've learned of the horrible place the abortion industry has brought our country where baby parts are sold and mailed and scientists and physicians talk about aborted babies like it was cardboard to be put in the rubbish and then you look at where our country has come with legitimizing same-sex marriage I mean when you really start thinking about and, and we could spend the rest of the day exploring the decay both morally and spiritually of our country and I, I really don't have the appetite for it because it's so depressing. But it's where we are as a country. And going back to the abortion issue, as I understand it, the American abortion industry is more brutal than any other abortion issues and industries in other countries. Does that sound right? So what path is our country following? I would say Rome. I would say Greece. I would say Medo-Persia. I would say Babylon. And we can say with surety that when Jesus comes, the United States of America will end. But we need to think about our country ending before then. I love our country. When we think about the privilege that we have as, as a country, it just really is amazing with all of the, the blessings that we enjoy as, as American citizens and the influence that our country has had. So I really am not down on the United States of America. I would not want to be living in any other country. And I feel that God has been kind and gracious to me by putting me here, but I cannot ignore the decay of our country and our culture. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream, interpreted by Daniel, says human kingdoms rise and fall. And I think we can add to that that the fall typically comes to the moral and spiritual decay of the country. And the whole time, God's kingdom is operating in the background. God's sovereignly working 
not authoring sin, but even using sin to bring about his purposes. Oh. That was one of the most pessimistic things I think I've ever said. (laughs) And as far as I'm concerned, justifiably so. But now I want to do something that probably you're going to say is nuts. We're to be optimistic. Even in light of all the crud that is going on, not just in our nation, but really uh, throughout the world today. And I want to talk about the reason I'm really getting hung up here, folks, (laughs) with my cord. Sorry. I knew this thing was going to come to haunt me at some point. I think it just did. But I want us to be optimistic. I have two reasons for us to be optimistic. One is this. We are already citizens of the kingdom of heaven through, through Jesus Christ. And so we can sit here today and really speak openly and hardly, that is to say strongly, about the moral and spiritual decay of our country and not be absolutely in despair. To be sober-minded, yes. To be heart-sick and grieved, yes. But not to be in despair. Why? Because we're to be optimistic because we're already citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that fifth kingdom, that kingdom of the little stone that is going to fill the whole earth, that has always been and always will be. And we're members of that kingdom when all the artifacts that point to the existence of the United States of America, well, will not even be a trace of them left when the new heavens and new earth will be erected here. And we're members of that kingdom already through Jesus Christ. And a second reason we're to be optimistic is because the very Word of God assures us that God's kingdom is triumphant. Listen to Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that what? Cannot be shaken. God's kingdom needs no shocks. (laughs) You can't shake it. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. Nebuchadnezzar did not worship because God is a consuming fire. Nebuchadnezzar did not worship out of, out of being an acceptable sacrifice to God in light of the fact that God's kingdom shall never be shaken. But we do. The reality and the assurance of the kingdom of God impacts how we worship vibrantly, lively, and optimistically as we come to worship and as we live our lives as worship. So the point is, don't be in despair. Be optimistic. You're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and God's word assures us of the triumph of the kingdom of heaven. One more passage, Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ And he shall reign forever, and we shall reign with him. Now, before I close, I simply want to ask what might our response be 
because Daniel ends, or at least our text ends today with Nebuchadnezzar responding, right? So I think it's legitimate for us to say, okay, how, how are we to respond in light of not only the content of the dream, but the interpretation of the dream, the great image and the little stone? And I want to suggest two ways. First, as those of us who are already in the kingdom, those of us who are optimistic, our response should be the same response that Daniel demonstrates in chapter 1, verse 18, to continually seek God's mercy as we live as his people, citizens of his kingdom, in this human empire. Seek the mercy of God like Daniel And as we do that, we will see God's mercy and his grace working in us and enabling us to be faithful and to stand faithful, not in our strength, but in the power and might of God. Now, we stand faithful. We want to be faithful so that we can honor our God, right? But I want to suggest to you there's another reason that we stand faithful Because I am of the opinion that at some point, those in our culture that are living like Nebuchadnezzar for the here and now and for life today and engaged in all of this moral and spiritual decay, some of them are going to come to a place of despair. And they are going to see the emptiness of a Nebuchadnezzar-like life. And they are going to ask questions. And they are going to need help. And they are, want, they are going to want to know, how can I escape this ship that is sinking? <laughs> and if you and me, the church of Jesus Christ, withdraw from culture, give up and become part of culture, or disengage from culture anyway, we're not going to be there for those people. I see a day coming, this is just my thinking, where we who have sought the mercy of God that enables us to stand faithful as His church in this wicked culture that people are going to come to us And we are going to have the opportunity to minister the good news of Jesus Christ to them. And to say, this is how to become a citizen of the fifth kingdom, of the little stone, of God's kingdom that will stand forever. This is how to have the stone crush your guilt (laughs) and take it away. This is how to have the stone Be that solid rock of life and assurance on which you build your life. And it is to come and repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And I want to say to you that one response for those of us who are in the the kingdom of God already is that we seek the mercy of God so that we can honor our God and that our lives might be for His praise and glory but also that we might be ministers of mercy for those fleeing this dying 
and decaying culture. And for those that are yet outside the kingdom of God, your response could be like Nebuchadnezzar. It kind of, <laughs> you just keep focusing on the here and now. And it is to you that I would say, be sober-minded about this dream. That there is a way to be citizen of a country that will never fall. And it's through Jesus Christ and through his grace. And so it's interesting that for the one that is still in the kingdom of men, the remedy is to seek God's mercy unlike Nebuchadnezzar. And for those of us who are in the kingdom of God already, we are to what? Seek God's mercy as well. And so as we conclude this series, this mini-series on Nebuchadnezzar's dream, I want to ask us all to consider, in light of the dream, the kingdoms of men will rise and fall. God's kingdom will stand forever. Where is your citizenship? And know that the only way to become a citizen of heaven is through Jesus Christ. God's mercy is available for us all to enable us to stand firm and to enable us to come into God's kingdom that will stand forever. Let us pray. Our Father, as we reflect upon this meaning of the stone, the purpose of the dream, we're reminded of the table that is set before us that proclaims and declares the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the saving benefits that are in him. And I pray, Father, that you would enable us to come by faith and that we would seek your grace. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.